or crestfallenness, root for the Georgia Bulldogs. We have that in common. And it's a sad thing sometimes. But more importantly, we have Jesus in common. And I am thankful for that. You know, we sang at the very beginning, uh, come as you are, come just as you are. And I think that's perfect for this passage this morning. It's Mark 9, 14 through 29. And one of my favorite passages uh, that I get a chance to, to preach to you this morning. Because within this passage, verse 24, we have this phrase from a father who is in distress over his son. Where he says, I believe help my unbelief. And I believe that this is a story that we find ourselves in. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Mark 9, if you haven't, if you otherwise just listen, I'm going to read God's word for us and then I'm going to pray and we'll work through this passage this morning. So Mark 9, 14 through 29, hear the word of God this morning. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him. That's Jesus. They're running up to Jesus and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whatever, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Would you join me in prayer now? Father, we praise you for your word and we thank you for its truth. We pray that as we come this morning, diverse people, different backgrounds, different circumstances, uh, burdens that we carry, we pray that you would speak to us where we are. Lord, we believe that that is possible, that you can use a a servant like myself and you can speak. Lord, I am in all of that. Help us to be in all of your word and your truth. And Lord, where there might be confusion or uncertainty, I pray that those would simply be my words and they would quickly pass away. But where there is encouragement and where there is edification, I pray that those would be your words and they would remain with us. 
We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever think of your life as a story? You think you're living in a story, and maybe if you're like me, you like music and you have a soundtrack, it'd be nice they're gone, but if I could have the band kind of playing behind me, you know, and sometimes it'd be the dun-dun-dun-dun, and then other times, right? You have, you'd have this soundtrack or this story that you feel like you're living in, and we love a good story, don't we? Whether it's in a book or in a movie or something we see on TV, we love, we are captured by a good story. And when we talk about stories and talk about the story that's here in this passage, please know that a story does not imply fiction. Right? It does not necessarily mean that it's something that's false or, or even maybe more positively made up. That a story can be true. And in fact, some of the best stories are the true stories, aren't they? How many movies are, do we see have that based upon a true story? Now, if you know the true story, you're like, yeah, well, they took like some names, and that's about it, right? But we understand stories do not imply fiction necessarily. Aren't you glad that the Bible is full of good stories? I am. Different types of people, different things going on. Of course, we have all kinds of different genres in Scripture. We have poetry, and we have uh, teaching and we have the gospels for example that tell us good stories what are the elements the five elements of story let me take you to class first before we go to church right you have the plot you have the characters you have the theme you have conflict and you have resolution of course we have all of that here in this passage but i really want to focus on the characters because you know in the south we love our characters and we have many characters. You know who they are in this church, right? I'm not going to name names because I don't know. But you, you know who they are. We love characters. But this is how we experience life. And we are characters in the story that God is writing through us and in us and in this world. Well, here's my theme this morning. My theme for this passage and the theme I want to work through this morning as I work through this passage is this. You can have an imperfect faith if you have a perfect Savior. Let me say it again. You can have an imperfect faith if you have a perfect Savior. Your faith can falter and fail if you know Jesus. You can struggle with unbelief and doubt when you also believe that God is bigger than that. That's good news. That's good news. So three things as we work through this passage. The story, the suspects, and I'm going to call them the usual suspects, and the Savior. The story, the suspects, and the Savior. So first, the story, and I want to do two things. I want to talk about the story before the story because that context is important to you understanding what's going on here. And then we'll talk briefly about the story at hand. So the story before the story that we're looking at this morning is what we call the transfiguration. That is, Jesus takes three of the disciples up on the mountain, and there he is transfigured. And so if you have your Bibles and you're looking at Mark 9, verses 2 and 3, tell us that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach. 
it's very hard for us to kind of completely wrap our mind what's going on in imagining Jesus transfigured, but we do get a little bit of a sense, the radiance, the intense whiteness, uh, there's glory there, clearly glory that is being demonstrated and shown. Peter, James, and John get a mountaintop experience like no other, right? I mean, this is the definitive mountaintop experience, though they don't understand it. And we love Peter because Peter speaks his mind, right? Better, uh, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. Well, Peter, he has trouble, right? He speaks. And so there Jesus has been transfigured and Peter doesn't know what to do about it. And so he, he says, well, why don't we make some tents? And you, Jesus, and Moses, and Elijah, who have shown up, they, we can hang out. You know, we can have s'mores around the campfire. Right? Clearly, Peter is missing something that's going on. But that is, of course, when God shows up. When we don't understand, God shows up and he declares, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Well, it's hard to listen if you're talking. So they come down, verse 14 it says that they've come down from the mountain. That's why uh, we see this. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So they've come from the mountaintop experience down into this great crowd and this mass of people and an argument that is going on. So that's the story before the story, the transfiguration. Now the story at hand, real quickly, broadly, in big you know, strokes, the center of the story is a father and son. A father who's been trying to get help for his distressed boy. One who's been in, stress, in distress for a long time. And he seeks the disciples' help. At the center of the story, the father and the son, and then Jesus performs a miracle. So this is sort of, that's the main thing about this story. On the ends of it, there's the argument and the answer. The argument over the disciples' failure to heal and Jesus' answer as to why they failed to heal. So let's look at this through the lens of the usual suspects, the characters in the story. And what I want to do is I want to look at each uh, group or individual in the story. And really what I want you to think about is where you find yourself or might find yourself in this story this morning. What part of the character do you find yourself in? Does it reflect some aspect of your heart where you are or maybe reflect in some cases an imperfect faith? So first, the crowd, verses 14 and 15. There's a large crowd. They're surrounding, uh, the, they have the disciples and the scribes and the crowd surrounding them. And Jesus comes down and immediately, it says in verse 15, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now, I'm going to make some assumptions about the crowd, so you'll have to bear with me. But if you read through the Gospels, you see the crowds in the Gospels tend to operate in very similar fashions. They are attracted to Jesus, but only to a point. That is to say, they are interested, but not invested. They are curious, but not committed. So they want to see Jesus do something, but when he calls them and says, follow me, they're like, nah, i got to check on my dog. Right? They've got something else to do. Curious, but not committed. They like Jesus. Most of the time, they marvel at him and his miracles, 
but they keep Jesus at arm's length. And when you do that, there is no faith. There is no faith in reality, imperfect or otherwise. Because you're keeping your life under wraps. You're staying in control and you won't let Jesus in close enough so that he can be in control. Well, we see in our churches and we see in ministries, we see the crowds. People who are interested but not invested. People who are curious but not committed. And it's okay to be curious. But here's the call. Come out of the crowd. Put your trust in Jesus. He will not fail you. So I don't know this congregation, so I'm just going to say very generally, you may be a part of the crowd, hanging out around Jesus, but haven't committed your life to him. Come out of the crowd. Also, so big picture, now let's, let's go down a little bit. Now we have another group of people, the scribes. So within the crowd, there are these two smaller groups, the scribes and the disciples, and let's take the scribes first. They're at the center of this debate. There's an argument taking place between the disciples and the scribes. And I have to imagine that the scribes are pointing out that the disciples have failed. Maybe they're rubbing it in a little bit. Yeah, it's a nice uh, Jesus you got there, but <laughs> you guys are something else. And they are. Absolutely. Now, the scribes are often aligned or, or kind of put together with the Pharisees. You could be a Pharisee and a scribe. The scribe is often sometimes referred to, our translations might translate lawyer. That doesn't mean lawyer in the sense that we think of lawyers, but lawyers in the sense of those who were experts in the law of God. They knew and were supposed to know the Old Testament front to back. They knew it well, but they also missed something. Because what they knew more than anything were the human traditions that they built around the law of God. That's where the scribes and the Pharisees were so often guilty. And so Jesus would say to them many times, he would confront them. Uh, just one example is Matthew 23, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So the scribes and Pharisees wanted everybody to look at them and say, Oh, man, those folks have it together. They really know God. They had it all dressed up on the outside, but on the inside, Jesus says to them, you're dead because you don't know me and you don't know God. You merely know the traditions that you have created and that actually push people away. They love the law and their self-righteousness more than they love God. And in so doing, they drove people away from God rather than bringing him closer to him. And let me tell you, I mean, if that's a big deal. To drive people further away from God is worse than the sin that you might be judging. That you might be looking at and saying, I wish they'd get themselves together. Be careful. We might find ourselves being like scribes, quick to condemn and slow to love. Ones who are interested more in winning the arguments than in being right before our Lord there is no Savior here because they don't need one. At least they don't think they do. And let me tell you, scribes, if you're in the crowd today, you need Jesus too. Because only Jesus can take what is dead within us and make it alive. 
Jesus can take what is broken within us and make it whole. You can shine up the outside, but on the inside you still have a great need. So scribes come to Jesus. Well, there's also the disciples. So we've had the crowd, we have the scribes. Let me talk about the disciples for a moment. And let's be honest, this is another, we call it, what, a facepalm moment, right, for the disciples? Not Peter, James, and John. I mean, they had that up on the mountain, especially Peter. But now the disciples, they are masters of the imperfect faith. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the disciples are so often failing? It gives people like me hope. Yes? I, I, this thing didn't come with a user's manual. but <laughs> Okay. All right. I'll probably best for me to leave that there. Now, why did they fail? Right? The father brings his son to the disciples. Jesus is up on the mountain. He's looking for help. They've actually had some success. If you track back just a little bit, and you don't need to turn there if you just want to listen, but chapter 6, when Jesus first sends the uh, disciples, the 12 apostles out, we hear, this is verse 7 and 12 and 13, then I'm agreed. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So Jesus gives them authority over unclean spirits, and they come back. It says, they went out and proclaimed the people that people should repent, verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they've had success, haven't they? They went out as Jesus commanded them and gave them authority to, and they came back and said, Jesus, look what happened. So they had great success, but here they fail. Why? Well, the answer is 28 and 29. This is at the very end of the passage. And this is in a private moment. Thankfully, Jesus is teaching them here, not so much rebuking them, though there is a subtle rebuke here. And they ask, why could we not cast out this unclean spirit? Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What is true Prayer. True prayer is our faith and dependence upon God in action. It is faith and dependence upon God in action. What were the disciples guilty of? They were guilty of not depending upon God and having faith in Jesus. They were acting as if they could do it on their own. You ever guilty of living the Christian life like that? Serving God, but doing it in your own strength. Ministering in his name, but neglecting prayer. Oh, yeah. Because it's so we're so accustomed to depending upon ourselves and our own resources that we forget that we have to and are called to depend upon God and him alone and his strength. So, yes, we as disciples are here. We do this. Tim Keller, in his book, The King's Cross, pulls no punches about the disciples. He says how arrogant, how clueless they are about their inadequacy to deal with the evil and suffering of the world. The disciples tried prayerless exorcism for the same reason they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and proud they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. 
So, yeah, have you ever tried to live that Christian life and fulfill the commands of God in your own strength? Yep. You ever try to serve God but forget to pray? Yep. Do you sometimes feel more sufficient than you actually are? Yeah. Yeah. This, my friends, is imperfect faith. And here's the good news. You can have an imperfect faith if you have a perfect Father and a perfect Savior. And that's who the disciples are following. And so Jesus sometimes rebukes, which he does in verse 19, but that's probably more directed to the scribes and the crowds. When he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me, speaking of the boy. But to the disciples, when they ask Jesus, what happened here? How did we fail? He gently teaches them. You who are disciples of Christ know that Jesus is teaching you. And he will continue to walk alongside of you, teaching you as you walk with him. Now let's look at the father of the boy. Here is really where we see the heart cry of an imperfect faith there in verse 24, where he says, I believe, help my unbelief, not just says it, he cries it out. Well, how does he get there? Well, remember the argument that's taking place between the scribes and the disciples in all likelihood with the crowds gathered around. Do you think the Father cares about who's right? Do you think the Father cares about the theological nuances that are being argued at that particular point? Absolutely not. And so Jesus here intrudes in the way that we need him to intrude. And he has this chance to explain the whole sordid tale of I brought the boy to your disciples, they failed, and this argument ensued, and Jesus, I need you, is effectively what he's saying. And Jesus, you see his command, bring the boy to me. So verses 22 through 24, Jesus has asked in verse 21, how long has this been happening? You know, this isn't something that just started last week, and you got, you, you're trying to decide if you should take the kid to the doctor. Right? This is something that's been going on, he says, from childhood. And verse 22, it is often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He has faith, but he doubts. And let's be honest, he's already been disappointed before. Those doubts are quite frankly, understandable. And so now he's standing before Jesus and maybe doesn't fully understand who he's standing before. He knows that Jesus might be able to help, but if you can help, please help us. Please have compassion upon us. But he's not certain. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus is certain. Verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Again, directing the faith unto Jesus. Know who you are standing before. Know who you come to. Then the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, how often I find myself living here. This is one of the most beautiful prayers that you can pray. Simplest prayers, shortest prayers, one of the beautiful, most beautiful prayers that you can pray. I believe Jesus. I believe God. I believe the Father. Help my unbelief. We need that. 
and we need to own this, but it requires us owning that doubt. It requires us owning our own imperfection and our own unbelief and our own uncertainty about God. But do you see that you can have this imperfect faith if you have a perfect Savior? Finally, there's the Son as a character. The Son's both a major and a minor character here. We don't ever hear His words. We just hear about Him. We know He's there. But maybe this is where you are too, where you live in a story. You feel afflicted and assaulted by evil, by an enemy. And maybe this Son wondered where God was in all of this. Well, here God shows up through Jesus. And Jesus brings healing and deliverance to him. Do you see yourself here too? Have you been delivered and had your life changed? We know the Father is acting on behalf of the Son, but and we're not told, but I have to imagine or I hope and I pray that I might meet this boy one day. That he too had an imperfect faith that was in the Savior. God uses the Savior to deliver us. He uses Jesus to deliver us from our greatest afflictions and our vilest enemy. Those are the usual suspects. There's a sixth character, but I wanted to have him all to his own, and that's Jesus. That's my last point. I just want to do this relatively quickly, talk about the Savior and this imperfect faith, because if you have as an object of your imperfect faith, a perfect Savior, then we live in God and move in Him. What are three ways? This is not the only ways that we see the perfection of Jesus, but three ways real quick that I want to point out that I see Jesus' perfection and see the way that He brings this into our lives as well. First, there's order in chaos. Have you ever felt like your life was chaotic? Like there's all these things going on around you that you don't control. Yes. At least that's how I, where I live sometimes. But Jesus, as he comes down off the mountain, he comes into the crowd, all of a sudden he brings order in the midst of this chaos of the argument that's taking place. And the Father sees something there, doesn't he? I mean, let's let those guys continue and have their you know, WWE moment. But let's, you know, let's talk about what's really going on. Jesus brings order in the midst of our chaos when we're able to place our faith in him, when we're able to look to him, we're able to talk to him in our prayer and hear from him in his word. Order comes. It doesn't out of our chaos. It doesn't mean that everything automatically is okay. But notice, too, the order and the chaos of what Jesus does with the son. The boy has been afflicted. He's been thrown into fire and water. He's, been, he, he's almost been destroyed. All of these different things that are happening to him. And Jesus heals him. Don't miss this. I know I've done this a little bit differently. But don't miss that Jesus heals the boy. He says in verse 25, he rebukes the unclean spirit. Here's his real rebuke. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And that spirit has to obey the authority of jesus this unclean spirit brought chaos jesus brings order that's a beautiful thing there's also power and glory here this is the second thing i maybe second and third thing if you but i'm pulling them together 
we've seen the glory of Jesus on the mountain, but there's glimpses of it here. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is Jesus. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus's glory is seen in all that he does. Sometimes we just get little glimpses of it. Sometimes we get big picture. And I think it's here, but it's power and glory joined together because the power comes through Jesus' healing the boy. Again, verse 25. We need that kind of power in our lives and we need to seek God's glory and not our own. Finally, there's the order and chaos, there's the power and glory, and then finally, there's just a hint here of the resurrection. Just a little hint. I don't want to press it too far, but look at what happens after Jesus commands the Spirit to come out and he comes out. It says, verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, so the Spirit gets one last little kick in, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Look what Jesus does. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Now, most of the time, this word for he arose is just he stood up. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, this he arose refers to Jesus and his resurrection. I say it's just a hint, but I think it's there. Our perfect Savior can save us from everything, including death. And what looks like and feels like death. That's beautiful. Again, let me quote Tim Keller. Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness. Just repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. The boy's father says, I'm not faithful, I'm riddled with doubt, and I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges, but help me. That's saving faith. Faith in Jesus instead of in oneself. Perfect righteousness is impossible for us. And if you wait for that, you will never come into the presence of God. You must admit that you are not righteous and that you need help. When you can say that, you are approaching God to worship. So where are you in your story right now? What character are you inhabiting right now? Or do you see yourself in this passage? But more importantly, where does the Savior fit? into your story. I hope you'll be encouraged this morning that you can have an imperfect faith if you have a perfect Savior. You can be desperate and wounded if you know the Savior does not fail. You can be afflicted for years and helpless in every way, and you can find the help you need in Christ. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I rejoice in your goodness to us to give us these stories things that truly happened and that we see ourselves in and the stories that we're living in now. Father, would you help us and help our unbelief? Help us to trust you, the perfect Savior. Father, we praise you for your great love for us, that you would send your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're observing communion today here at the Village Church, and 
I think sometimes when we come to the table, we think we've got to have it together in order to be accepted, in order to partake. Well, let me tell you, there are imperfect, in fact, the only people that are welcome here at the table are imperfect people. That's the only kind. When you come, though, you are recognizing that God is the help that you need, not what you get once you fix yourself up. And so come as a sinner and come as one who would say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Romans 5 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. That's right. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this table is for those of you who know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Those of you who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And have confessed that. That's best represented when you're a member of an evangelical church. But let me tell you that this table is not the table of the village church. It's not the table of the uh, denomination that we serve, the Presbyterian Church in America. It's the Lord's table. And so I welcome you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior alone. Again, I don't know all here, so I welcome you. But if you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're uncertain of where you are in that story that we've talked about, maybe you recognize that you have doubt, but you also aren't certain if you have faith, I would simply ask that you let these elements pass by. We will not think less of you, and we will. I would encourage you to take this time not to let Jesus pass you by. Instead, to pray and ask Him to reveal Himself. And if you have doubt, then indeed ask Him to help you and to help your unbelief. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this meal for us who are sinners, but sinners who admit that we need a Savior, who come to you in faith and repentance and ask that you would continue your work in our lives. Use this meal for your glory and our good. Use this meal as you have intended. Take these common elements of bread and juice and devote them to your holy purposes. And Father, I pray for any who are here or uncertain of their relationship with you, who may choose not to partake of this meal. Lord, help them where they are and show your power and your glory in their lives. And Father, we pray for any children who are here who will not take this meal. We pray that you would work faith in them and that in the right time, we would see that as well. Father, we praise you and we thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to call the elders up while I read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, as I've just done, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to say, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim 
the Lord's death. That is, you are saying, He is my Savior until He comes again. You proclaim that. Let us do that this morning.